The NFL Power Rankings Podcast is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Ticket prices drop right before the game starts, and because GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, they're able to show you the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. Thanksgiving means food, family, and of course, football. But if you need a break from all that family time, why not see if you can score some last-minute tickets to see the Bears play the Lions, the Bills at the Cowboys, or cap off Turkey Day in Atlanta with the Saints and Falcons. Game time will get you in the door and into the best possible seats at the best prices. The Game Time app is simple, quick, and easy to navigate. Download the Game Time app in the Google Play or App Store and score last-minute deals on tickets up to 60% off. And welcome back to a very special bonus episode of the NFL Power Rankings podcast. We are not getting into power rankings today, but we are getting into some other rankings that we've done. Maybe you've noticed this is the all decade week at The Athletic, where across our site, we've been talking about all of the best things that happened in the 2010s. For our NFL staff, that means we've been going back and looking at all of the best games of the decade, the best moments. And of course, we have our all 2010s team. So with me to discuss our all 2010s team today, um, I've got my colleague, Mike Sando. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Good to be here. This will be a fun one. Yeah, so what we're going to do is um, our team has been published. It is online now at The Athletic, um, but we're really going to get into who the guys are on this team, how we how we went about selecting this team, and why we picked the guys we did. So before we get into the full team, Mike, can you kind of take us through what the methodology was, how we went about um, deciding what this team was going to look like? Yeah, I mean, first we had some discussions over what is the structure of the team? I think the game has changed you know, over the past decade to where, for example, you know, when I was covering the NFL 15 years ago, the base offense had two running backs on the field and one tight end and two wide receivers. Well, now it's three wide receivers, right? And then on defense now, you have nickel corners. So we really had to figure out, okay, do we want to have a traditional all-pro team like it was put together 25 years ago? No. So, you know, we did things like, let's have a third wide receiver. And then we debated, okay, for the cornerbacks, do we have uh, two traditional outside corners and a nickel corner, which we, in the end, decided, let's just have three corners. We'll let the voters decide if they want to have somebody, you know, who played mostly nickel, that's fine. And that became a little bit of a debate. You have somebody like Chris Harris, who probably doesn't like being known as just a nickel corner because he was more than that, but he played a lot of it and played it well. Should he get the spot? So we can get into that. And then it was really pretty simple after that. Once we got the structure, we just created kind of a Google you know, Docs page that was a shared page where uh, you could go in under your column and put in, okay, I think these are my two running backs. And I, and I then decided, you know what? I'm going to make people put them in order. You know, I think that kind of <laughs> makes it fun, too. We're going to have three defensive linemen, two edge rushers, but you got to pick them one, two, three, and one, two. And, uh, and that, that was really hard. Challenge. As a voter, that was really difficult. And um, I think I drove Mike nuts because I kept changing my picks. <laughs> uh, she's <laughs> probably going to change. Friday. She's probably going to change during the podcast two more times. Uh, that so. 100% is going to happen. <laughs> but I think that shows that we all want to get it right, too. You know, we all cared about it. And, 
you didn't feel great. In the end, you didn't feel great about everything, right? There were yeah. hard decisions yeah, to be absolutely. made. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think there were a couple spots where it was really easy. And then there were a couple spots that were really, really difficult. And, you know, I just think football changed so much from 2010 to 2019. And, you know, you think about the way that offense was played, defense was played. And, you know, Mike and I both um, do a lot of work with the Pro Football Writers Association. And we have our, you know, our, our, the, the PFWA teams each year. And we've gone through all these iterations of how are those teams going to look? And the all pro teams year to year have changed in the middle of the decade. And there was one year, um, several years ago, where Khalil Mack was a first team all pro at both outside linebacker and uh, defensive end. And that was really a sign to like a lot of us that was like, okay, our structure has to change. We can't keep formatting these teams the same way. And, you know, I, yeah, I did have a couple really difficult decisions, but there were a couple easy ones. And let's start with probably the easiest decision uh, and one of the only unanimous decisions I think that we had, and that was at quarterback. So who is our all 2010s quarterback, Mike? You know, it, it is Tom Brady, and obviously he was excellent. And statistically, he was excellent. Uh, and his team went to the Super Bowl five times and won three. Um, you know, Ted Wynn, though, said quarterback was the toughest call for him. Isn't that interesting? Really? And Ted is more... Um, you know, he's very analytical, film-based, right? And I think he has an appreciation of of the fact, let's just call it a fact, yeah. that um, like if you could play a one-on-one -on -one game of quarterback, which you can't, but let's just say, you know, Aaron Rodgers would beat Tom Brady in a game of one-on-one -on -one if these were two basketball players of, of their skill level in football. Um, Rodgers can do more things. He just can't. Yeah. He's just a more special player in some ways, just his dual threat ability, his amazing throwing ability. I mean, there's, he's just amazing. So yet at the quarterback position, kind of like the head coach position, um, it's not all about that. It's um, how do you drive the success of your team? And in the end, we don't know a hundred percent which guy uh, did more to help his team when we just know which guy's team won. <laughs> right. And, you can't take that away from Brady. Uh, plus, he's he was awesome. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like he wasn't good. Well, and one of the things, this is something that's going to be continued out as we continue this discussion about all the positions. When you're talking about an all-decade team, too, there's something about sustained success from, you know, in this case, from 2010 through 2019. You have to look into how many seasons were missed to injury, Um you know, that the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. So, you know, I thought it was an e a fairly easy call for me that Brady, when you look at the entire decade and his body of work. Um, but I had a couple other guys that I was thinking about. And, you know, you asked us to actually answer a question, who would we put as number two? And that was really difficult to me, for me, because, you know, Drew Brees is the stats. And I think his entire decade, you know, I guess that he won his Super Bowl uh, in February of 2010. So, you know, he did win a title technically in this decade, although it wasn't this a season from that was included in this decade. But then, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's, what about Russell Wilson? Um, you know, Aaron Rodgers, obviously, you know, Ben Roethlisberger is probably in that mix. What about Peyton Manning? Yeah, who, Peyton had his, some good years. Yeah, I mean, his best seasons, you know, 2010, 2013, 2014, um, were as good or better than any other quarterback in this decade. But then obviously he, you know, and he did win another Super Bowl, even when he was at a very diminished capacity. But then obviously he didn't play from 2016 through now. Um, so that makes it difficult where, you know, the guy who, you know, the two guys who had the best quarterback seasons in this decade, Peyton Manning in 2013 and 
Patrick Mahomes last year. They didn't play enough of the decade to oh, yeah. be the guy who has a place on this team. Yeah, and I think when I looked at it too, so Drew, you know, Drew Brees can't control the fact that he had historically bad defenses for I know, years. Yeah. They had a Bounty Gate scandal that is, you know, the team was ripped apart, his coaches coach suspended. suspended. Um, you know, he was really playing with uh, accelerators slammed down to the floor, you know, really having to do it. Whereas Tom Brady always had pretty good defenses. They were really smart with how they managed the games. They were pretty uh, versatile. They could run the ball pretty good. Rodgers, a lot of times, didn't have a good running game. Uh, Russell Wilson had a great defense for part of it. So all these guys are in different situations. But, you know, in the end, I think Brady checked almost all the boxes. And it's funny. At the end of the decade, I just sorted all their stats for only in the decade, right, just starting. And and Brady and Rodgers are, like, almost identical. I mean, they're within 10 touchdown passes of each other. They're, you know, within about 15 interceptions. Um, that looks pretty much the same. So they were doing something right. All right. Now let's move into running back. This was one of the more difficult ones for me, in large part because the value of running backs has changed so much when you think about what what NFL offenses looked like in 2010 through 2011-12. You know, we had Adrian Peterson who won an MVP award, which just seems unfathomable right now that a running back could actually win that award. Um, So Mike, who are our running backs, um, number one and number two? And what did you notice about the voting here? Um, well, the running backs ended up being Adrian Peterson and Marshawn Lynch, who were, you know, obviously fine players. But I felt terrible about this one because if you just like the first thing I did just to give myself a barometer was I went over to Pro Football Reference and I just stacked the running backs by scrimmage yards, right? Because we're not just talking about rushing. We're talking about the evolution of the game and receiving yeah. and the whole thing. And and that would give you sort of a quantitative qualitative look at just who played the most too. And so here are the top three running backs in total yards for scrimmage. LaShawn McCoy, 13,800. Frank Gore, 11,700 about. He's he's behind by 2,000 yards. Matt Forte, 11,300. So the top three guys in yards from scrimmage during this decade are not on our team. And like McCoy got a lot of second place votes. The other guys didn't even get votes. Yeah. And so, you know, Adrian Peterson is next. DeMarco Murray is actually after that. Marshawn Lynch, Le'Veon Bell, Arian Foster. I mean, there were a lot of good players to choose from. And I think you'd even make a case based on the results that we got that McCoy should be the second guy over Lynch. The difference was that two of us, me and Ted Wynn, put Marshawn Lynch first on our ballot. Adrian Peterson was first on the rest. I don't necessarily agree with Adrian Peterson being that high for the decade. He had great years yeah. before it. He had a he had a few great years. The two thousand yarder. You made a great point as the MVP. Maybe he just has to be on it. But I don't know. I mean, I could argue against all these. Yeah, I think of any of the groups. I think saying I feel terrible about it is kind of the right the right way because it's just how I feel too. And um, and I have Lashawn McCoy on my list and. You know, I think there's a little bit of me that just I feel like he wasted some of his prime years being in Buffalo. And I just wish like, you know, he's with he's in Kansas City right now and he's not LaShawn McCoy of 2012 anymore. And I just I'm like, how great would it have been if we could if he could have had those prime years, all of his prime years with Andy Reid and could have been right now. You know, he could have been in that offense with Alex Smith, you know, in 2014. 
I think that would have been really fun instead of being in Buffalo. Um, you know, Marshawn Lynch, yeah, I mean, his his overall stats didn't quite stack up to some of the other guys there, but I think you can't, you can't argue with his impact and what he did for that Seattle team. And, you know, they would not have won that Super Bowl in 2013 without Marshawn Lynch at all. And that's our he job. Was, yeah. Yeah. That's our job here. We, anybody can just run the statistical leaders from the yep. decade. We could just press a button and we're done, right? So we had to use some judgment on it. Um, one of the interesting things to me was, you know, Shiel Kapadia is on our, on our team and has covered uh, the Eagles a lot. So he didn't have Sean McCoy as one of his top two guys. And I asked Did him he why. have Marshawn Lynch on his list? Uh, let me look at Shiel here. Because so he also had, covered the Seahawks. Shield with Adrian Peterson and Marshawn Lynch. And okay. so I asked him, though, I said, hey, so so as part of the process for this, we're all on, you know, sort of a, a messaging app here. And I decided I would grill everybody privately for questions for this. <laughs> and so uh, they couldn't see what everyone else's answers were. So I said, hey, Shield, you know, as a Philly expert who lives there, let's hear your thoughts on why McCoy is not your top running back choice. You know, and he said, number one, he joked. He said, I think I was trying too hard not to be a homer, but that wasn't the actual reason. He said, McCoy is a great choice. He's got the numbers. Given his receiving prowess, he serves as a great example of how the position was changing. Running back is so tough for a list like this because so much comes down to when a guy was drafted too. McCoy entered the league in 09, so the entirety of his prime was in the 2010s. Peterson and Lynch had great years in the 2010s, but get dinged since some of their prime years don't count. So you see what he did there? He didn't really answer it because yeah. it's unanswerable, right? It's unanswerable. I mean, I just feel like in my mind, Adrian Peterson was a singularly great rusher of the football who wasn't as great in some other areas and was really up and down with his seasons, you know, having injuries and stuff during the decade. And, yeah, wasn't a and sing- he had a suspension. Had his yeah. suspension and wasn't really the signature driving force on a championship team, which I know we're not talking <laughs> about quarterback wins and we're not talking about running back wins, right? We're evaluating these guys on their own. But it means something to me what Marshawn Lynch did uh, on that team because you can't watch that team and say he wasn't – He, I mean, they rallied around how he ran the football. The Beastquake run was in this decade. Well, yeah. Wow. That was a 7-9 and nine team that won a playoff game, and I'm sorry – they don't win it without that run, which was oh, awesome. It's the great, not, yeah. It was one of the five greatest runs in league history. I'll just say it, right? Yeah, the, and the other interesting guy here, although I will say, when we're talking about Adrian Peterson, I was at that playoff game that the Vikings lost to the Packers when Joe Webb was their quarterback. So, I yeah, mean, that was, that was an extreme. I mean, that was that was really, really rough. He, um, he also you know, set the record for most rushing yards in a game this decade, I believe, right against the Chargers. I think he did, so... Um, you know, Adrian Peterson's a fine choice, and that's why four people put him number one on their ballot out of our six voters. And the one guy I know you and I talked privately in these chats where you were grilling us, we talked a little bit about Frank Gore, who is, was not on anybody's ballots. Um, he's going to be a really interesting Hall of Fame case. Um, but I think, he, you know, he's a guy, too, where some of his best years came before this decade. Um, but, God, he just deserves, like, a Lifetime Achievement Award. That If we need a guy who can, like, cross decades... Um, it would, could it do would it be all. Frank Gore. Could absolutely do it all, too. Great pass protector, great receiver, great runner, great, just consistent guy. I think seen as a great teammate, uh, oh, a yeah. very smart football player. So, uh, yep, I, I think right. he will go in the Hall of Fame. So, All right, let's move into wide receivers. Um, who are our top three wide receivers, uh, Mike? Okay, top 
top wide receivers were pretty well straightforward, not necessarily the order being unanimous, but Julio Jones, Antonio Brown, and Calvin Johnson are our three choices. And they were the only three players that appeared on anybody's ballot. I'm just double checking that. But yes, they were the only three. So no one else even got a vote, you know, um, which maybe tells us those are the three guys, right? Yeah. And it's tough because I think there's a couple other guys who, you know, maybe because of when they were drafted, um, how many years that they played, haven't gotten into that conversation, whether that's like DeAndre Hopkins or uh, Michael Thomas from the Saints. It's like some of the guys who are the very best wide receivers right now today, they just didn't have the as as many years as these other guys did. But for me, these guys, these three were pretty clear. The one, you know, it was a little tricky because, you know, Calvin Johnson only played half of the decade, but the half of the decade that he played, he was the man in those in that decade. Um, but I, you know, I feel good about these three. Um, I guess maybe the one other guy would be Larry Fitzgerald. Um, just kind of like we talked about with Frank Gore, where, you know, he maybe his very best years were outside of, you know, his prime, his his young years were outside of this decade. We we need an appreciation for what he's done. You can put him on the 2000 and the 2010. So this is maybe interesting to people listening is like, OK, because you don't really in your mind, you don't have a statistical cutoff point that allows you to assess these players without knowing what they did before, right? Like in your mind, you're like, oh, he was great in those playoff games. But that was in the last decade, right? You know, uh, Fitzgerald. So here are the yardage leaders. Okay, here are the yardage leaders during the 2010s. Julio Jones, Antonio Brown, one, two. Larry Fitzgerald is number three. Demarius Thomas and A.J. Green are four and five. Calvin Johnson is six. So... Yes, three our three guys are in the top six, but Fitzgerald, Demarius Thomas, and AJ Green didn't get a single vote. Should they have? And I'm going to say no, because I think a decent way, somewhat of a decent way to evaluate just the playmaking ability of these guys is just yards per catch. And Calvin Johnson and Julio Jones are well over 15 this decade, which is pretty darn good. Yeah. And Larry Fitzgerald's like at 11. He moved into that sort of slot role, uh, became a little bit more of a volume catcher, but not as big a picture with some bad quarterbacks. So I think also Demarius Thomas seemed to, you know, be great. You'll know this better than me because you've been in Denver. Seemed to be just amazingly elite with Peyton Manning and then not so much without. Is that fair? Um, yes and no. Um, I would say that probably the argument for Demarius Thomas was that he had his breakout season and he had this like ridiculous stretch of like 100 yard games while playing with Tim Tebow. So you know, he, he and um, put him and at the actually, top like, right there. He, exactly. Right. Um, so I think you you could make that case. But I mean, he his career accelerated because of the, you know, the 20. 20 through 2012 through 2014, just insane numbers that the Broncos were putting up. But he was very consistent up until kind of very at the end when he started having a little bit more injuries. He also played through a, a ridiculous amount of injuries. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the one guy that I just still, I just wish there was some like some way that we could get Larry Fitzgerald in there. He just doesn't have the stats. But I mean, but he does. Like, He's he third in the artist this decade. Yeah, well, he just he deserves some sort of note. Like, I mean, you saw that block he put on Nick Bosa last week 
like 45 year old Larry Fitzgerald blocking the crap out of Nick Bosa. I mean, it was it was insane. So I wish there was some extra category that we could put Larry Fitzgerald and Frank Gore. And there's probably other a couple other guys that we'll talk about through throughout that we could put them as this extra like honorable mention category catch all. But we can't do that. We had to list it. We had to limit it to three. And these are our three and we're sticking with them. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, one thing I'm going to uh, I'm going to do here is look at uh, how many just how many really good seasons each guy had in the decade. You know, in a good season, let's just make it a thousand yard season. This is an interesting cutoff. So there's different ways to look at these guys, and uh, they didn't all have 1,200 yards a year for every year of the decade. So some of them it could be hurt. They were great earlier, and then we don't remember as much lately, or vice versa. But Calvin Johnson, Julio Jones, and Antonio Brown are guys you had to double guys who are just dynamic threats um, and did it for a lot of years in a decade. Yeah. I mean, they're probably the, the guys that if you ask, you go around and you ask defensive coordinators, like who are the the, the biggest nightmares, like the yep. guys that freak you out the most, it's, it's those three guys. So now let's move into another one that was not so complicated for us. And that's at tight end where I believe that we were unanimous that our all 2010s tight end was Rob Gronkowski. Can you take us into the thought process there, Mike? Yeah, well, he, he, I mean, we, he doesn't need a lot of explaining. You could look at Jimmy Graham. There's a couple other guys who had good stats in the decade, but I don't think anybody checked all the boxes of, okay, a great dominating blocker. Uh, okay, a great receiver who is an amazing matchup problem. Oh, you contributed to um, success of a team at the highest level, which even at the end of his career when he could barely – walk and it you know it made me hurt every time he got hit um he was still making plays in the super bowl to win a championship i mean he, he yeah. was still extremely tough to deal with so when i looked at uh and when i stacked them up so he he's far and away above the other tight ends of the decade in a few categories like this um yards per catch over 15 yards per catch for tight end insane i mean there's wide receivers on this who don't touch that Yards per target, almost 10. And then, I mean, a great blocker, too. So uh, I think it was an easy choice. It was so easy that I asked people, hey, who from our de- all-decade team would you have tried to defend them one, one-on-one? And that ended up being actually really hard because I think you don't want to defend him one-on-one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the easy answer, right, is you don't defend him one-on-one. And I think any defensive coordinator would say you're nuts if you if that's your game plan. If your game plan is to just send one guy to cover Rob Gronkowski, you're probably going to lose. Um, but I thought that was a really interesting discussion. And, you know, I had to think pretty hard about it when you asked me that question. And um, my answer, I kind of, I probably but didn't answer it directly the way that you wanted because I had Eric Berry on my ballot as one of our, one of our safeties. And we're going to get to defense here in a little bit. Um, and he's the guy that I, I said, if we had to give one, put one guy one-on-one to cover him. Um, and I, unfortunately we just didn't get to see enough of those matchups because um, Eric Berry spent the last couple of his years um, just unable to play. And his last really great game actually was against the Patriots when he was shutting down Rob Gronkowski until he suffered that, um, I guess it was that heel injury, Achilles heel injury that really just kind of derailed his career, unfortunately. But it was a really interesting debate. And I think the answer was there's no right answer. And that just shows how good Rob Gronkowski is. Yes. And not everybody, you know, you weren't the only one to, to take an Eric Berry type who wasn't a final choice on our team. Ted Wins had Aqib Tlaib. And obviously you yeah. know Aqib Tlaib career well and you struggled with where do we put him on here you thought about it and it was close um but really ted said 
I think he's the only corner that's physical enough to hang with Gronk. In his prime, there were, weren't many corners in the history of the game that could jam like Tlaib. So I think that was a good choice. A couple of us thought about Cam Chancellor. I think you know, Cam Chancellor was such a physical hitter that people think he was somewhat of a liability in coverage, and I don't think that was necessarily true at his peak. I think he could really tilt the field and uh, could you know, match up um, at his very best, not throughout the whole decade, but at his very best. So that was a good answer. I think Richard Sherman was an answer for, by Dan Pompey. Um, Dane Brugler actually joked, half joked that Aaron Donald, he'd like to see that match up for a couple of plays <laughs> same, same. before he went with Patrick Peterson. But I think the idea was the same. You almost need a really big uh, corner, right, or an unusual safety. And uh, more often than not, teams didn't have that to defend him. And that's why he averaged 15 yards to catch as a tight end. That's amazing. 15 right, yards. Think of that. Think of that. 15 yards <laughs> average for a tight end. When you think of the routes most of those guys run. Yeah, I mean, he he didn't run typical tight end routes. Yeah. And I just keep thinking back to, you know, his last most impactful play was that really deep route down the left sideline in the Super Bowl, where yep. that's not a typical tight end route. And, I mean, it just really, it was such classic Rob Gronkowski that um, I'm kind of glad that's the way he went out, where we really had that to remember him by and, uh, and nothing else. So now let's move into the really sexy stuff here in the podcast. We're going to get into the off- offensive linemen. So let's start with our tackles, where I thought this was also a fairly easy choice. So who are our two tackles, Mike? And yeah. how did we go about setting up this offensive line? Right. So on the offensive line, we decided let's just make it simple. Two tackles, two guards, and a center, right? Just like you would have in the game with that. That way we didn't do two left tackles, two right tackles. You really get into a research project that probably becomes tedious for the reader too, right? So um, we decided let's just keep it simple. And the two tackles were Joe Thomas and Tyron Smith. And I think the only other guy, well, not the only other guy, but another guy who, you know, could have been considered certainly was Jason Peters. And he could be two decades, right? It could be the last one and this one. Um, Joe Thomas, I think, was a no-brainer. He... Uh, had that amazing streak of 10,000-plus straight snaps, which started in 07, so it wasn't all this decade. But I think just consistency for being on the field, being regarded the best at his position. Um, and I did go through. I did kind of keep off to the side our Pro Football Writers of America, all, uh, all, uh, pro, all pro teams every year, and I counted up. He was a six-timer during the decade um, at tackle, and there was really no one even close. Um, in fact, Tyron Smith was the only other guy who was on that all-pro team more than once. So he made it three years from 14 to 16, which shows how hard it is to be regarded the absolute best at that position for a long time. Um, in some cases, it's just hard to stay on the field. Yeah. All right. Now let's move into the guards. Um, this was also another, it's a little tricky just because, um, you know, compared to like wide receivers where it's very clear statistics from catches and touchdowns and yards per catch and all that stuff, you know, guards don't really have that, those stats, but where did we settle at those guard positions? Yeah. We had Marshall Yand and Zach Martin. I think even for those of us who have read Ted Wynn's advice on how to watch a football game, our eyes do gravitate towards the ball and other things, right? You and I could have a great debate over Antonio Brown versus Julio Jones but you and I wouldn't have as great of a debate on Marshall Yanda versus Zach Martin, right? We don't, we don't just have off the top of our head the nuances of some of these interior line positions. But um, as I noted in the piece, there were 12 guards who were PFWA All-Pros during the decade. 
and Martin made it four times, Yanda three. Jerry Evans was two, but those were really the multiple time winners. So we have some uh, backing for this. Obviously, we know they were good. We know they dominated. Um, but, you know, I don't know how much more there is to say. Yeah. Well, and I get, you know, when it comes to offensive line play and especially interior offensive line play, um, you know, I've been an APL pro voter. You know, I vote in the Pro Football Writers Association, all pro teams every year. What I do when it comes to these is I call offensive linemen or I, when I'm in locker rooms, I talk to offensive linemen that I know and respect and I get their opinions. And I talk to people who are experts on offensive line play and the people who are experts on offensive line play, these are the guys that they love. Um, and I also did this um, with the center position that's coming up. So our all 2010 center um, is Marquise Pouncey. And there were a couple guys I think that we could have chosen there. And I reached out to a couple offensive linemen that I trust and they said, all right, who's the best? Rank them. And they all said Marquise Pouncey. So, um, Mike, let's go get in a little bit, get into Marquise Pouncey a little bit more and what the voting was like there. Yeah, at our center position, basically Pouncey and Alex Mack were the two guys to get votes. Now, I went back and looked at the Pro Football Writers of America All Pro teams, and there were some other really good players. You know, Travis Fredericks, one of them, Jason mm-hmm. Kelsey. I, mean, I think Jason Kelsey yeah. could have been. Um, considered Ryan Khalil was very good. Um, so there were some good choices there, but Pouncey was probably the most decorated guy. And he's just really athletic. You know, I think that's just a lot of what goes into um, with Marquise Pouncey. And he's, you know, he was the anchor on really, really, really good Pittsburgh offensive lines that were just very dominant for the entire decade. Yep. All right. So that was enough off offensive line talk. Let's get back to the exciting guys and let's get into the defense. So this was one of the most difficult decisions. Let's start with our edge rushers. And um, I think it'll also be a little helpful, Mike, if you can kind of take us through how we decided to set up the defensive line, um, where how many players we picked, what we did defensive ends versus tackles versus edge rushers, um, and then the guys that we picked for those edge positions. Yep. I think the edge rusher concept um, obviously has always exists. I would probably give Pro Football Focus credit for using that term. It seemed like they were the ones who started um, talking about edge rusher because it, you needed to figure out a way to solve for the fact that there's different types of defenses, right? And sometimes a defensive end uh, has a very different job than he would on a different team. Like the Steelers' defensive end is going to be different than Pete Carroll's defensive end, which is going to be different from another team's defensive end. So um, part of it was, let's just find a way to acknowledge that the edge rusher position is kind of its own thing, uh, yet let's still be able to honor these great defensive linemen who, yes, could rush, but but maybe played elsewhere on the line. And so uh, we didn't want to have the best guys left off, right? So some of it was almost a little bit looking at who the best guys were and figuring out a structure that um, would make it so we didn't have a team where J.J. Watt didn't make it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, It's a a little bit of that. We just wanted to make sure we had the best team and have it look like something that could be um, on the field, too. So we had the two edge rusher spots, and that was a hard one uh, because uh, there were multiple guys. You know, you could have said, you you know, Basically, our choices were Vaughn Miller and Chandler Jones, but it wasn't that simple. I mean, what do you do with Khalil Mack? How long did yeah. they all play during the decade? Um, and so everybody felt bad for living some, leaving somebody off. But I think in the end, we can feel pretty good about Vaughn Miller and Chandler Jones um, being choices as the edge rushers. 
Yeah, I mean, I I felt really bad about having Khalil Mack off. I mean, it feels there there's a little bit. It feels weird to look at an all 2010s team and he's not on our defense. Um, but he is a little bit more of kind of a, a tweener. Like I mentioned, that he made an all pro team at both outside linebacker and defensive end one year. And it just kind of shows how difficult um, that is. But I felt very good about Von Miller and Chandler Jones. And I had a panic moment. You and I were discussing uh, last week where I thought for a moment that I didn't have Von Miller on my ballot. And I panicked because there's no way that you could talk about the NFL in the 2010s and defense in the 2010s without Von Miller. Um, So that was a difficult choice for me and ranking them one versus two. I believe Von Miller was our number number one edge rusher. And we had Chandler Jones as our number two. I actually had them flipped. And that's only because I really wish I had been able to classify Von Miller as a linebacker because while he is an edge rusher and he's just so respected for his past, you know, his pure pass rush ability, he's not just a pass rusher. I think to me, he's very clearly kind of just the, the most versatile uh, weak side linebacker in the NFL. And he's so good uh, as a run defender. And he, he's really underrated um, as a run defender. And he's actually pretty good in pass coverage. They will drop him back a lot. I mean, he's had interceptions. He's not a great interception returner, even though he claims that he is. Um, but he also, like, he's not a total liability in pass coverage as well um, down the field. I mean, he had a pass breakup in the Super Bowl like 20 yards downfield against a wide receiver uh, in that car- that Super Bowl they won when he was Super Bowl MVP. And those are the kind of plays that I think back to just that show Von Miller's overall value outside of just being um, an edge rusher. But when it comes to just like a guy, one guy that you want to go and get the quarterback um, right now, and then pretty much throughout the whole decade, it was Chandler Jones. I mean, I just kind of watch his watch his tape in awe, and hopefully we'll have some, uh, some actually some interesting stories coming up with him um, later this season. I heard somebody's working on one. I don't know who that is, but uh, potentially, yeah. It. Hopefully, that's going to come about. Um, but uh, I thought it was helpful. You know, we, you always hear people say, "Hey, you know, sacks are overrated." But over time, every great pass rusher has a lot of them, right? You're not going to be like, you know, this guy only had four sacks for his career, but he's the greatest pass rusher in league history, right? That wouldn't happen. So, it is helpful. It was helpful for me to just stack the the leading sackers over the decade, and. Von Miller is number one in 103. J.J. Watt, 96. Um, but Cameron Wake is in the top five, yeah. okay? Then Chandler yeah. Jones, Ryan Kerrigan, Justin Houston, Cam Jordan, Clay Matthews, Suggs. We didn't even mention Suggs. You think he's good? Yeah. I think he's yeah. good. Julius Peppers, he's pretty good, right? So Yikes, there yeah. were a lot, a lot of guys that we could have considered here, and Sometimes some recency bias comes in. Khalil Mack has like, you know, 40 fewer sacks than Von Miller in the decade. Well, those 40 sacks represent a lot of solid play. Some of it's timing of when you came into the league. There's more games for Von Miller, and that's part of this. So um, this was a hard one. And yet, in the end, I like our two guys. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean, a couple of those other guys you mentioned, you know, I think Suggs probably is the one that I feel maybe we talked about Khalil Mack, but Suggs is probably the other one that I feel a little like, ooh, I don't know. You know, I mean, he was part of that insane Ravens defense when they won a Super Bowl a couple of years ago. He's actually still playing really well. You know, he's in 2019 in Arizona, not getting as much um, attention for it, but yeah, but I, I'm okay with those guys. And then I think that also leads into how difficult the, the defensive line spots were. And, you know, 
because we so we we picked three defensive linemen. Um, and so that was kind of a broad category where that could be anybody from, yeah, a JJ Watt who could potentially, you know, he's could potentially fit into like a more of an edge, you know, an edge role sometimes because of his sack numbers. Um, and then guys like, you know, defensive, you know, really interior linemen and nose tackles. So um, who are our three that we went with there? And what was that voting like? Yep, that was Aaron Donald, J.J. Watt, and Calais Campbell. And I think they're all big guys who could play inside or out and affect the quarterback, play the run. They're the total package players. And uh, so I felt great about having those three guys. There were a couple other players who got votes. Uh, Ted Wynn uh, recognized Vince Wilfer. And then Dan Pompey, who's been covering the league for a long time. 30 plus years went with Geno Atkins, who I think is a good name to remember too. So I'm a voter for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And so many times, uh, there, once you vote on the class, there's a ton of focus on who didn't make it. And I think that shows how hard it is. You know, the, no one's saying like the guys who make it in shouldn't make it usually, right? That's not usually the argument. It's there's only a certain number of slots. And so at the end of the day, I feel great about these three guys. I mean, these were the clear th- three guys to me, um, and you can't go wrong with them. Yeah, and I think that it's interesting that, um, you know, you, you, Mike, you asked us to rank the guys one, two, and three, and this was the one place where we actually have a tie at number one, and that's between Aaron Donald and J.J. Watt. And, you know, these are guys who are both uh, multiple-time winners of the Defensive Player of the Year Award this decade. Um, you know, I think they both – arguably for MVP candidates, the years that they won defensive MVP. I actually voted for JJ Watt as MVP several years ago, uh, the year that he, he actually received several votes. He, I was not the only one. I was not alone on my Island voting for JJ Watt as MVP, but um, I thought that was interesting that they were just so it, it was hard to pick one over the other because they were both so good in their best seasons. They were by far the best player in the NFL, even though they didn't get honored with the MVP award. Yep. No, I'm with you. I'm with you 100%. So it was a tough one, but we can feel good in the end, I think, with who we got. So so, so the flip side, so where we went with three defensive linemen and two de- or and two edge rushers, that meant that we that left two linebacker spots. Um, so let's get into that. Who are our two linebackers for the All-2010s? Yeah, and for this linebacker spot, we're kind of thinking of a traditional linebacker. You're really coming down to a 3-4 inside linebacker or a 4-3 um, you know, off the ball type of linebacker. And there were only two guys um, that got votes here, and that was Luke Keekley and Bobby Wagner, right? You couldn't go wrong with either one of those guys. And Keekley ended up getting five of the six number one votes. Wagner got one of the others, and then Wagner got five of the six number two votes. So I think two really good players, you know. Um, you could have maybe considered Patrick Willis, but, you know, he was earlier in the decade. Maybe that hurts him. If Patrick Willis had come in in 2015, would we be saying he has to be on it? Um, Gerard Mayo was the only other, I think, middle linebacker uh, selected to our Pro Football Writers of America All-Pro team during the decade. So um, it was a short list of guys. Yeah, and I will say I was the one voter who had Bobby Wagner first. Uh, over Luke Keekley and uh, maybe that's a little bit of my West Coast bias. Although, Mike, you live in Seattle, and uh, you had Luke Luke Keekley over Bobby Wagner, but I've been yeah. um, I've kind of been banging the Bobby Wagner drum since I don't know 2012 2013, where I don't think he got enough credit for how good he was in the early part of the decade because of the other guys 
that were around him, you know, that he was playing on a defense with Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor and Earl Thomas and Michael Bennett and uh, Cliff Averill. Um, but I think those guys would all tell you just how important Bobby was. And then in the years since those guys have all been gone, we've really, really seen just how good Bobby Wagner is. Um, I, w- I never voted for him for MVP. That was Tony Dungy. But um, I, he was a, that wasn't easy for me. To, that was an easy decision for me to put Bobby as my number one um, linebacker for the decade. It was easy. It was easy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And that's not and, a, that's not a knock at Luke Keekley. I mean, those two those guys were by far the the top two. But um, I, I, I it was should, easy you know, for me to put Bobby first. I didn't feel strongly about it either way, and so you know, I suppose that I I didn't see one guy as like just light years better than the other. But I could have gone either way. Like if you flopped him on mine, um, it wouldn't have changed the final results. But I would I'd be fine. Yeah, and I could defend that too. All right. So now let's move into defensive backs. And this was another um, probably a little bit more difficult just because of we were trying to figure out how to structure that team. And you talked about that a little bit at the beginning of the podcast where we decided to go um, three cornerbacks. And that's also the way that the all pro voting has shifted this decade, where there's kind of like a flex defensive back position. We chose to make um, to, to have the third defensive back specifically be a cornerback we kind of pulled back the curtain we had a conference call recently with our our national nfl staff and we probably debated this for a good 20 to 30 minutes as we tried to figure out exactly what we wanted that third spot to look like so mike take us into that conversation and then who did we ultimately end up with as our cornerbacks number one two and three Yep. Well, I'll give I'll give you that last part first. Uh, Richard Sherman, Patrick Peterson, and Daryl Revis made it. And um, in Sherman and Peterson's case, you know they they've played almost all of the decades, so that made it easier. Revis obviously played a little bit before, at, you know, and then this decade. And and did he play more games than than this guy or that guy? Uh, we decided in the end to just have three cornerback slots and not call one of them nickel or or whatnot. Um, now it didn't. You still had uh, Chris Harris as your third guy. And I think most people, if you had to do a nickel spot for the all 2010s, would probably take him. I mean, he proved he could do that at a high level, um, as well as other things. But uh, I didn't want to. There wasn't enough consensus on exactly how to structure it. That I said, all right, all right, kids, you do it how you want it, right? You know, um, three corners and you pick them. And people did what they wanted for different reasons. And the cornerback debate, if you go early this decade, remember when the you know Sherman and Revis would be on Twitter and there would be debate over like the style of scheme you play, you know, and uh, are you off the ball? Are you do you have quarterback vision when you're playing the position? Are you do you, play, do you, you travel with the number one wide receiver? Like yeah, all those things. Yes, all those things. So you know, in the end, we had to take all that into consideration. And I thought, like I did, my votes were Sherman, Peterson, and Revis, but. Like I could easily argue it the reverse order. And uh, so, you know, I I found it to be an an interesting debate where, like I said, Sherman, Peterson, and Rebus were the top three in that order. But other guys who got votes, Akib Tlaib showed up on Ted Wynn's ballot. And he was Uh, real close on mine. I had him initially on my ballot, actually. Yes. And I, I think, though, that's the only other guy that appeared as I look here. So... It was pretty clear that it was, we wanted, oh, and Harris, you did Chris Yeah, Harris, and I right? had Chris Harris on my ballot, and I'll get into that here um, here in a second. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these guys, and I and I totally understand the argument for Jarrell Revis. I mean, when he was at his peak, kind of early in the decade with the Jets, 
And then even when he came back and played for the Patriots and he ended up winning a Super Bowl, you know, I think he was kind of that true definition of a, of a shutdown corner. Um, but ultimately, I decided we, you know, we we went back and forth about the three cornerbacks. And I just thought so much about how much how defense is how defense was played this decade and how valuable that nickel corner spot is. And it is kind of this, like, it's a pejorative, like, oh, he's the nickel corner or he only, you know, that somehow assumes that a guy who's a nickel corner only plays, you know, you know, 50%, maybe 70% of the snaps. And that just doesn't, it's, it's just, the problem for Chris Harris is he doesn't fit in any of those boxes directly. Um, He also played opposite a really good cornerback a lot, you know, where, you know, he played against the opposite of Champ Bailey, early in his career when Champ was still, you know, in, in 2011, uh, 11 and 12, when Champ was still Champ Bailey before he got hurt in 2013 and kind of limped to the finish line there. Um, but what, for me, Chris Harris, he just really epitomized what a 2010s cornerback needed to be. You know, he was the guy who could play everywhere. And I think he understood it. It drives him crazy. And he's still playing at a really high level for the Broncos. He's going to be a really uh, coveted free agent as we head into 2020. But, you know, I know he felt like he was always underrated because the guys that we talk about are Richard Sherman and Patrick Peterson are the guys who primarily play outside. They're the guys who get the higher interception numbers. Um, You know, those sorts of things where, you know, he always was moved inside and he would harass his coaches to just let me play outside and be an outside corner all the time and let me be the guy who's going to travel. And inevitably, you'd get three or four games into the season. And this this happened here in, in 2019, where they kind of went into the season being like, OK, he's going to be our outside corner. Bryce Callahan's going to be our nickel. And Bryce Callahan didn't play a single snap for the Broncos. So sure enough, here comes Chris Harris back into the slot where, you know, he played he's he lines up outside and base, and then he goes in and plays nickel. And there's just nobody who plays that inside role better than him. And given how important slot receivers have become, you know, he was the one guy who could really cover uh, Julian Edelman. You know, he's a really good tackler, a really willing tackler. Um, and, you know, he, he tore his ACL, did not play in the, in the Super Bowl in 2013 when the Broncos lost to the Seahawks. I don't know if he was healthy, if they would have won that game. They also didn't have Von Miller, who had torn an ACL. But I think it would have been a little bit different. So I had to put him on my ballot. He was like one of the other guys where I was just like, I couldn't think about the way that defenses were played in 2010s and arguably the best defense of the decade, which was the Broncos in 2015, and not include Chris Harris on there. Yep. No, I think it's a, a great points and a good, uh, you know, sort of support of him. Um I thought Denver also seemed to have him always on a good contract for the team, you know. And oh, you look, very, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the ways you, you know, one of the way, things I looked at was, you know, if you look, if you go through and rank the cornerback sellers, you're going to see some train wreck contracts, right? Like Trumaine Johnson, guys who weren't even half the player of Chris yeah. Harris. But like all the top deals go to those guys who are quote unquote outside corners, right? That's what the league still pays. You, you you might read stories about how the value of the nickel corner is going up, and it is, but those guys aren't getting setting the market yet either. So um, I think there's still a perception and a you know the way the guys are valued that if you're not playing outside, um, you're not making as much money either. We'll see. Maybe Chris Harris has a chance to change that this off. Yeah, I don't think he was ever. Um maybe, maybe last year, I need to check it exactly, but I don't know if he was ever even the highest paid cornerback on his own team. Um, 
And that was the reason that he held out in the 29 off se- 2019 offseason was that they signed uh, Kareem Jackson and, and Bryce Callahan. And he was like, what the hell, man? Like, <laughs> you're paying these guys more than you're paying me. This is crazy. Um, yep. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where where that's at. And, you know, I think the really interesting thing, too, that you, you have to appreciate, especially when you look at Richard Sherman, who is our number one cornerback for this decade and a little bit with Chris Harris, too, was that. These were not high, you know, the, they were not high draft picks. I mean, Rick, Richard Sherman was a really late draft pick. Didn't even play start playing cornerback until late in his career um, at uh, at Stanford. You know, I remember Patrick Peterson. I covered preps in, in South Florida, and I remember Patrick Peterson. You know, when he was one of the top recruits in the country. But you know, Richard Sherman, kind of a, a late round pick who really bloomed. Chris Harris, the last undrafted guy that the Broncos signed in twenty in twenty eleven, the lowest undrafted signing bonus on the team and, you know, really kind of came out of nowhere to become some of the dominant players of the decade. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Um, All right. Sherman, by the way, I just want to say Sherman for the decade leads the league in interceptions. Um, So some of that scheme and all that, you got a great pass rush the way they played, but um, he's up there and actually in the top three um, is Earl Thomas as well. And we're going to get into the safeties now. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, I we didn't talk enough, I think, about Richard Sherman. I mean, so much has been said about him in this decade. And he also had some of the most memorable games and the memorable moments. And you'll be able to read about those games and moments um, on The Athletic this week as we talk about our all-2010s team. But, you know, there were a couple of Super Bowls there, and then especially that NFC Championship game against the Niners, which was really, you know, if people didn't know who Richard Sherman was yet, uh, when he was yelling at Aaron Andrews after shutting down uh, Michael Crabtree, everybody knew it. And, you know, he absolutely deserves that number one cornerback spot. So let's talk about some more Seattle guys. This was really interesting to me to see that both of our safeties uh, were Seattle Seahawks. Mike, you live in Seattle. So let's get into why Earl Thomas and Cam Chancellor were the were our safeties for the 2010s team. Yeah, well, Earl Thomas was unanimous. All six of yeah. us picked him as the number one safety, and I think he doesn't need a lot of elaboration, but obviously in that scheme that uh, Pete Carroll runs that has become more common um, throughout the league, uh, he was just singularly able to cover the ground necessary and make the impact plays uh, to help tilt the field in Seattle's favor. So um, he was a really easy choice. I mean, there just hasn't been a there's just not many safeties like him ever that could really run like him. So, uh, and then obviously had the production. He was in the top three in interceptions um, for uh, the decade. Now, Cam Chancellor was the choice on, let's see, one, two, three of the six ballots for the second safety. Okay. Now, the other two people to get votes, Eric Berry, you and Dan Pompey, each went with him. And then Dane Bruder went with Devin McCourty of the Patriots, who's probably lost in the shuffle a little bit, right? I think, though, when you look at the two safeties of this decade, Earl Thomas, we already mentioned, is is unique. There's not anyone else in the decade who played the position at his level with his speed and range. You'd agree? Yeah, absolutely. There's not another safety who resembled Cam Chancellor either, right? No. No. I mean, there's... Yeah, no, nobody resembles him. And the way that the rules are changing, I don't know if there's ever going to be another guy like him. Yes. If you if we were to put all of these guys in a room and they had to fight their way out, I mean, Chancer might be the guy who walks out, the last guy out. I mean, he was just uh, – I did a story four or five years ago on 
actual documented cases of intimidation. Okay. <laughs> Kellen Clemens w- had watched the film of, of a hit he put on the week before. He's playing quarterback for the Rams. He's running. He's scrambling. He actually sees Cam Chancellor coming and waves. He puts his hand up and slides like, hey, hey, don't hit me. Okay. There's another play where Jimmy Graham, who was in, you know, in his prime at the time, has this catch downfield and he actually turns and loses yardage. He runs back about three <laughs> yards and sits down rather than just get absolutely smacked. There were plays, there was a play I remember in a primetime game at Seattle where he put, he just, Vernon Davis catches this ball on the sideline and Cam Chancellor knocks him in the next week. It's a perfectly legal hit, but it was so hard they flagged him. Yeah. He got a flag for a hit. It wasn't illegal at all. He just hit him so hard that it seemed unfair. <laughs> you know, that was Cam Chancellor, really yeah. a man among boys on the field. I really believe that. He, I remember he decleated Eric Winston, who was a tackle for the Cardinals. Wow. He yeah. got up under his pads, lifted him off the ground, threw him on his butt, and made the tackle. There's just no one who could do what he did. I would add that the 2013 Super Bowl, the the Seahawks Broncos Super Bowl, where you know we spent God, I mean, how many words did you and I and all of our peers write about the number one offense versus the number one defense and all that stuff going to that game and. You know, like, yes, there was a a snap over Peyton Manning's head the first play of the game. But the play that set the tone that that just I was I was I was for sure. okay if the Seahawks are winning this game was Cam Chancellor just knocking the snot out of Demaryius Thomas um, very, very early in that game. And Demaryius Thomas actually went on and had a really he was like the only Bronco who played well that game. But Cam Chancellor absolutely set the tone for that game and you know after that hit they just went on and rolled um so yeah i mean cam chancellor you know so intimidating you know i think you know for him i i did put eric berry ahead of him um you know eric berry's a little it's just tough because his between the year that he missed while he was beating cancer you know i that's that's tough he and then his the last couple of his years just really were derailed by that um that foot heel kind of injury but at his peak you know eric berry was was the best to me. I mean, outside of Earl Thomas, Earl Thomas clearly is the best, but um, there's a little of my AFC West bias in there that I watched so much of Eric Berry, but he was so, so, so good. Um, And it's interesting. I like that Dane put Devin McCourty in there. And I think you're right. He did get lost in the shuffle where, you know, the Patriots were never known for their dominating defenses, but I think Devin's a guy who maybe should get some consideration just based on his longevity and what he's done through the duration of that decade and how many rings that he won. And he was really, well, there are so many other defensive pieces changing around him for all of these iterations of the Patriots. He was really the one consistent piece there. Yeah, there were two players uh, who got votes, defensive votes, who played for the Patriots during the decade, I believe. I think it was Chandler Jones and Devin McCourty were the only. Oh, Re- you know, Revis played there briefly. And Revis, but you know yeah. what I mean? People that were real Patriots. Revis's best, uh, year, best years were with the Jets, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So not a huge number. Oh, and I guess Tlaib got a vote, too. So you know what? These guys moved around. But as far that's the interesting thing. Maybe that just says more about the Patriots, how they move on from guys, right? Chandler Jones, yeah. Akeem Tlaib, Real Revis were all there and didn't stay. So Yeah, so what does that say about Devin McCourty, then, about he's the one guy that the Patriots have never moved on from? I mean, that just must say a lot about his leadership and um, and also his high, consistent level of play. Dane Brugler has a great comment in our piece about McCourty, so check it out. All right. So now let's move into the specialists. Um, we've we've gotten through offense and defense. We'll get through these these pretty quickly because I think these are also pretty clear. So, Mike, who are our kicker and our punter on our all 2010s team? OK, our kicker unanimously was Justin Tucker. 
and just about by any measure, you could make a great case for him. You know, he was uh, just in his field goal percentage or however you want to do it. And our punter was Johnny Hecker, which I think you could have done. Uh, you could have looked at some other guys. What's interesting about him, you know, yes, he leads the league during the decade among qualifying punters and net average, which is very exciting to people. I know you always hear people in bars debating net average. And, people have and been waiting this whole podcast yeah. to listen to punt net average. Um, I know but I, I got a fun note on him. I, there's other stats, too, that I looked at, like the percentage of punts returned or not and all this stuff. But how about this? He's got 11 passing first downs in the decade, okay? That's by far number one. He's 12 of 21 passing for 179 yards. That's 8.5 per attempt with a touchdown and a pick. So there's no other punter coming close to being used for his ability to do the fake punt. Ha, we got gotcha, you, you know? And I think their ability to do that has been a cool uh, sort of, you know, dimension to Hecker that doesn't necessarily exist with, with most other punters. Yeah, absolutely. I just, you know, he's, he's fun too, because, you know, he's always, there's always a chance that it's going to be a fake with him and that he's going to throw a pass. So that, that, that adds a, a little bit of extra excitement. Um, I think maybe the one other guy that, you know, I didn't consider anybody else seriously, you know, Johnny Hecker was a pretty clear number one. Um, I would maybe also consider Brett Kern from the Titans. Yeah. I mean, just in terms of like consistency across the decade, he probably would have been my number two um, in that, in that, but look, it was, it was Johnny Hecker. It was Justin Tucker. I think those are really pretty clearly the, the two guys there. So now let's talk about returners. Um, who do we have a punt returner and kick returner? And what were you considering there? Well, just for our younger fans, people used to actually return punts <laughs> and kickoffs. Yeah, um, what is a kick return, Mike? Yes. Let's tell our kids uh, about it. Yeah, exactly. So um, that has become a very boring part of the game and sort of in the name of um, player safety. And yet uh, the two guys, like it was Devin Hester made it as our punt returner. And part of me was like, oh, wasn't that the previous decade? But it was actually both. He had 14 career punt return touchdowns. Um, and this seven decade. of them, no, 14 for his career, seven this decade. So think okay. of that. He had seven punt return touchdowns in each decade. That's impressive. <laughs> I mean, that, yeah. that's amazing. When's the last one you saw, Lindsay? You know what I mean? You can't even name it. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and so he, I did certain things like looked at how many touchdowns per return. There's some interesting stats on it, but he also, Hester was the number one in uh, average yards per return. Uh, on punt in the 2010s among guys who had done it a lot. So Tyreek Hill was in the mix. Tariq Cohen was in the mix. But um, Devin Hester, I think, was a great choice. He, he had the most punt return touchdowns this decade with seven. I think uh, Tyreek Hill's at four, but Hester was a great choice. Cordell Patterson was our choice on kick returner, which is really an endangered species, right? I mean, yeah, um, they, this probably won't be on our 2020s list. I just don't think yeah. that position will even exist. Yeah, exactly. We might as well have long snappers on here. Uh, but uh, he scored. Patterson has seven kickoff return touchdowns during the, the 2010s. So that put him ahead of Jacoby Jones, Leon Washington, and Jacoby Ford, who had four pieces. Leon Washington, that was a great name from the past to us. Yeah. Even wow. living in Seattle where he had a couple of good years at the end. Uh, he was a fine player. He, he was a good uh, good returner and just a good all-around player. Um, but Patterson was first in yards per kick return, 29.9, among the 35 players in the decade with at least 75 returns. So I think he's a good a good choice. Yeah. All right. So we're going to wrap up our all-2010s team with two Patriots. 
uh, guys who have really kind of been crucial pieces of the Patriots dynasty through this decade. So it's our special teamer, who is Matthew Slater, who, speaking of guys who the Patriots do not move on from, they freaking love Matthew Slater, um, so much so that he's just really kind of created this own role for himself. So he was our pick at special teamer. He's he's so valuable there. He's so valuable to everything that the Patriots do. And then our head coach, Bill Belichick, that was also a pretty clear pick for us. Mike, take us into these two decisions a little bit more, and especially into Bill Belichick as our coach of the decade. Yeah, it was either Lane Kiffin or Bill Belichick. So it came down to those two guys. <laughs> it was really guys. close. Yeah, um, it was very really close. close. Uh, no, but Belichick won 79% of his games so far during the decade. The next guy, I think, is Tom, won at 65, which is excellent. But at the end of the day, I mean, the number, you know, the head, the head coach, you know, did you go to Super Bowls? Did you consistently win? I mean, that at the head coach position, I think we're not saying we're giving him a lot of due for that, right? So um, Belichick's just an easy choice with the, what, five Super Bowl appearances, three Super Bowl titles. Um, I've done pieces in the past about how, uh, in order for Bill Belichick to be coach of the year, he has to win yeah. like 14 or more games. And other people go like 10 and six and like, oh, good job. We weren't expecting you to be that good. You're a coach of the year. You know, it's like Belichick yeah. just keeps punching in with 12, 14, 13 wins and everyone's like, yeah, okay. Your Belichick, so it doesn't yeah. count as much. All right. Well, that wraps up our all 2010s team. Um, please check out Mike Sando's story. It's up on The Athletic now. And check out all of our coverage of the all 2010s team. I wrote about the best moments of the decade. Shil Kapadia wrote about the best games of the decade. Ted Wynn wrote about the football evolution and the, the schematic changes that we saw in the 2010s. So we've got a ton of coverage um, site-wide. We also did this for Major League Baseball and NBA and hockey and, and college sports. So make sure you check out all of uh, the all 2010s coverage and we will be back next week for our week 14 nfl power rankings hope you all have a great thanksgiving we'll see you then